Well, it was in the script. And when we got down to the set, everyone was wearing ponchos, which should have made us think something is going to happen that's not usual. But I don't think anything could have prepared us, first of all, for John's performance. Something, I mean, it's you have su such brilliant acting. I, I didn't realize he was acting. Well, you saw, thought something had gone wrong. That, that he was, I didn't he... even think. All I thought was John is dying. And then the next take, and this is with a couple of guys underneath the table, no CGI, no anything, no green screen, with a couple of little tubes and, and bulbs, and they made this little, honestly, they did a quick change. Then this thing came out of John Hurt's fake chest, sat on the table, looked around, went, and ran off the table, all in one shot. And there's a master where all five of us are like, and we're not acting, because we just went, what just happened? You wanna see, yeah, you wanna see Like when the xenomorph took out Harry Dean You wanna see, yeah, you wanna see Like when Bobby D says, you're talking to me Seen it all with Jeff and John Hey everybody, welcome to Seen It All with Jeff and John The podcast where we break down our favorite scenes from our favorite movies I am Jeff Glover And I'm John Zabriskie and... I can't lie to you about your chances, but you have my sympathies. I don't know why I went all Irish there. <laughs> <laughs> You're just uh, applying your own method. <laughs> right. I, I'm method in copying people's lines. <laughs> and in this episode, we find out that in space, no one can hear you scream. That's right. We are talking about a scene from the 1979 sci-fi horror classic, Alien. Yeah, this is 
this is our first, I would say, scary movie, horror movie of seen it all with Jeff and John. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to excited to talk about uh, how this movie really put me through the ringer. This is a good first scary movie, I think. I think so. You know, we we're, we're bridging between horror and sci-fi. Um, I felt like this was a one that uh, you could watch and enjoy and uh, wouldn't uh, send you ducking under the covers too many times. <laughs> no. <laughs> How many no. times it, did it, you clutch it, your pearls while watching this, John? <laughs> <laughs> oh, far too many times. But I, I, I think I think overall what I notice is the movie plays out a lot like another movie that we've talked about, a sci-fi classic, Predator, in that there's a short chunk of time that the movie takes in taking out all of the crew except for the final girl, Ripley, and then the rest of the movie is kind of like just uh, surviving versus the alien, kind of like Predator where you have Arnold as the final girl surviving <laughs> against the alien after his crew's taken out over really not that much time in the movie. And what an attractive girl he is. bulging (laughs) bulging uh you're right though they do share a lot of the same dna i i think Mm -hmm. i think this movie had a lot of influence on a lot of different things and we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that i think as we get going but um Mm -hmm. you can see uh predator really pulling from alien in terms of its structure and and story and uh Mm -hmm. just kind of overall uh, like three act structure here, it share, shares a lot of the same, uh, a lot of the same uh, steps, a lot of the same beats. Yeah. Um, and so, looking at it that way through that lens was was pretty interesting. Having spent so much time watching Predator with you, uh, going back and watching Alien and seeing how similar they are in some ways was was fun. Yeah, you have the one word names of everybody. You don't know like first or last names you just know that name kane and brett and parker rambert ash ripley dallas yeah i just named them all i think i named them all just named Um, them all oh and then the eighth passenger alien Uh, by the way that was one of the titles that keeps popping up for the international release of this movie is uh the eighth passenger is death or alien oh the last the eighth passenger Mm -hmm. Hmm. so kind of like the predator was somewhat of like the eighth of the, of the team members. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Just the one out for blood. Yeah. What's your, I'm curious, what's your history with yeah. this movie? Have, did you watch this uh, much at all when you were younger or is this a movie? No, you no, 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 turned, no, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> More later this, in life. This, way later in life. I, I think I talked about it. A couple episodes ago when we were talking about Rambo, possibly. Mm. Um, or no, I think it was when you recommended it uh, or told me that we we're going to be covering Alien at the end of the Nikki Gunn episode. I think my my most most of my knowledge and experience with the movie comes from following the movie along somewhat minute by minute watching, but definitely listen to the movie by minute podcast by uh, John and Mitch, mm. um, who did the Alien Minute podcast as we're doing the Predator Minute podcast, but um, listening to them talk about just everything you talk about when you do that kind of minute-by-minute minute, uh, movie breakdown, th- that was most of my experience was listen to them talk about it and watch some of the parts of the movie. I don't think I've ever actually watched the whole way through this movie until you mentioned it wow. last episode. Then 
yeah, I, I went ahead and watched the director's cut just because um, that was the fastest torrent to download. <laughs> yeah, I um, so I watched the theatrical cut. Um, mm-hmm. This is this, I have an interesting history with this movie. Uh, some might find it interesting. I this is one that I did not really watch as a kid. Um, like growing up in the eighties, uh, I was too young to really watch this movie. Um, and so by the time I actually saw it, it was like probably mid nineties. I was a teenager. And, you know, when you get to that age where you're now allowed to essentially watch whatever you want, I went through this phase where I wanted to go back and watch a lot of these like classic movies that I had always heard about. And so I know at some point I watched alien, uh, I don't, I can't remember if it was on HBO or if it was a VHS rental. But either way, I'm realizing why it didn't quite stick with me at the time. Like watching this movie on an old tube TV in four by three aspect ratio would suck. Like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like this movie is not meant to be seen that way. And it wasn't until years later, like once we all had uh, flat screens that were, you know, widescreen that I, I, I rewatched this movie probably in my late twenties, perhaps early thirties. And that's Mm. when I realized kind of what a masterpiece it actually was seeing this in its full original widescreen, um, with the surround sound and the sound design and, the you know, seeing the, the, seeing the movie and all of its clarity, like, it is a gorgeous film. It is a, a really amazing oh. in terms of cinematography and photography mm-hmm. and set design, creature design, sound design. Like it's incredible. And um, I really had a fun time rewatching it for this episode. I, I actually went ahead and ordered the 4k Blu-ray uh, <laughs> right after. I feel like you've done that for every single movie. <laughs> I know so far. <laughs> if if it exists, I'll I'll order it. It gives me an excuse. My wife can't give yeah. me too much shit. <laughs> but uh, after uh, talk, you know, after um, saying I want to do this movie on our last episode, I I went on Amazon and there it was. Um, there was a no, not all not all these all movies anymore or yet have a 4K release. And lucky enough, Alien did. And my God, it is a, a gorgeous release. Um, and so I stayed up late and put that on, turned the volume up loud. And boy, it was a really, really fun. It was just a delight to watch in that way. It was beautiful. Yeah, no, it was, I would say overall, it was a delight for me to watch up to a certain point. <laughs> uh, probably namely this scene that he chose. Uh, just because, because it's so violent and so intense. It's the best scene. <laughs> oh, it's the, it's the scene. It's the like scene. when you talk about, have we even talked about what scene we're talking about? We haven't. I, you're right. We have not. Oh, we really buried the Yeah, lead. sorry, everybody. We are obviously going to be talking about the chestburster scene. Oh. Oh. Uh, the the, uh, the scene in this movie. And we'll talk more about the significance of this scene because I think it's not only is it the most striking scene, the most jaw-dropping scene, it's it plays a pivotal role in the structure of the film. Um, mm-hmm. But this is, if you're following along at home, this is going to be, I think, the shortest scene we've ever covered. Yeah, just three minutes. Yeah, it's going to go from minute 53 and 36 seconds up to minute 56 and 56 seconds. And mm-hmm. that is, I believe, uh, on the original theatrical cut? Yes. Yes, okay. Yeah, so the director's cut is actually one minute shorter, which is interesting. Uh, and I've never yeah. watched it. I've only ever watched the theatrical. So 
So, so speaking of like scenes and just intensity, I was mentioning scary. Were you, were you ever scared of this movie watching it? I think by the time I, I don't remember being scared watching it as a teenager. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, you know, I might've been, I, I just might not have a memory of it. I can't honestly pinpoint. I don't have a specific memory of watching it as a teenager. I just, I know I, I did at some point just because like whenever I, we, you know, watch it now, like I know the beats of the story, I recognize scenes. So I know I've seen it before, mm-hmm. but okay. um, you know, but I, by the time I really watched the film, uh, I was an adult and I was already, you know, pretty desensitized to uh, scary stuff and, and horror movies because I've, I've watched so many of them at this point. So this is a movie that doesn't really scare me, but it does do its job, which is to make you feel anxious. And I right. absolutely get, you know, roped into this movie. I get sucked into it where it's, time passes very quickly for me when I'm watching it, even though it's people call it kind of a slow burn. I get kind of mesmerized by it, especially the first hour, like leading up to the chest bursting scene. I think it's just mm-hmm. an amazing mesmerizing, uh, awesome, like build up to, uh, the story. And, and so I, I'm less scared by it, but I'm, I, and more kind of mesmerized. I get sort of locked into it where I'll just sit down and watch the whole thing. You know, I was just going to ask you like what your experience was. Do you, do you feel like it's a scary film or, or do you have the same feelings I do? Um, no, I mean, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm still not someone who likes scary movies. I, I, I can't. You're a little I more of a sensitive soul. <laughs> I, I'm a sensitive soul for sure. I mean, I think you can be sensitive and like scary movies. It's just sure. not what I'm into. I am totally, though, into the atmosphere building. I'm into the handheld camera, which I read that Ridley Scott just did all the handheld stuff himself, which is awesome. It's amazing. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. And that's what like wandering around the Nostromo uh, for a good chunk of that first half of the movie, like you're saying is all about. And later uh, once all the people are killed off, there's a lot of just kind of wandering the halls, which I think is a really cool effect. And it's just a cool way to show off the world. It's such a small world in the, in the spaceship, but such like a just like a foreboding claustrophobic dark world yeah and that's i i think the the chest bursting scene which we'll talk about in detail later marks a very specific and deliberate turning point in the style of the film you know in mm-hmm. the first you know everything leading up to that scene like you said the camera is moving um, it never really stops. We don't get a lot of static shots. Even when we're just seeing the crew hanging out and talking, the camera tends to be moving. Mm-hmm. And we get everything from large, wide shots of the ship, which are amazing, by the way, for 1979. Like just yeah. what stunning special effects. Um, and we get these wide shots of the stars and the moon and the planets that are coming on. We get the camera moving slowly around the interior of the Nostromo. We can see all the detail of the set design and this ship that they live in. And it mm-hmm. it feels, you know, and then even when they uh, eventually touch down on the, on the alien planet and they're getting off the ship, we see, you know, most of the shots are big and they're wide and they're showing these large open spaces. And when we transition once that chest burster scene happens and all of a sudden the alien is loose on the ship everything gets tight 
Everything gets smaller. Mm -hmm. You know, people are trapped in rooms. People are crawling through vents. Um, I read that Ridley Scott actually, like every day of shooting, would slide the walls of the Nostromo hallways like closer together to make it feel more claustrophobic. Did you read that? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, re- I read that too. Yeah, I mean, that just seems like such a, a Lucille Bluth kind of thing from West <laughs> Development. She's moving the wall against the other Lucille. Yeah, but I, <laughs> I, I think it's a very deliberate, very deliberate. Uh, choice to to do that mm-hmm. the way that we get these big expansive shots a lot of these slow moving long one shots in the first half of the film and in the second half of the film we're always like stuck somewhere we're always contained we're following someone who's trapped in a small space and it just builds that claustrophobia um mm-hmm. i don't know i love that dichotomy between the first half and the second half of the movie yeah it's 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 a good point and yeah the the pushing of the walls would definitely add to the claustrophobia <laughs> not just not just for us but definitely for the actors that's yeah. just so crazy there's all and, and there's all sorts of stuff like behind the scenes stuff that happened between the actors where they're either methodically just antagonizing each other so that they're like more angry at each other on, on the, uh, whatever on camera as well. Yeah. I don't, I never read anything though about Ian Holm going all method and acting like an Android, but I could totally see Ian Holm do that just cause he's so good at playing these cold, cold characters. I love watching this movie now that I know that he's an Android, you know, yeah. and, and his performance gets that much better when you know that. And, and you get all these little teeny clues throughout the film and, you know, watching it a second time through, knowing that that's the case is, is really fun. You can kind of mm-hmm. see choices they made to sort of foreshadow the fact that he's an android. What a what a simple concept for a movie. I was thinking about that, getting ready for, for our episode. It, and you mentioned earlier Predator. Predator is a very mm-hmm. simple setup, right? Yes. Yes. They're a team of guys goes to the jungle. Alien shows up, starts killing them. They try to survive. Ends with a one-on-one showdown. It's essentially what happens in this movie, right? We've got a team of people. They're on a ship. A distress signal happens. They go to check it out, find an alien, old ancient alien civilization. Once gets on the ship, starts killing them one by one. Like a very, very simple setup to the story. Yes. But I, I'm yeah, very s- simple. Very Yeah. yeah I, I think talked about a lot in predator minute i know we're, we're going to keep referencing predator minute a lot by the way everybody because there's <laughs> it's a freaking shared universe by now it's a 20th century fox so it's right i don't, I don't think the universe sharing is ever gonna go away now predator, <laughs> yeah i actually right, kind of i kind of forgot about that as i was watching this and and yeah you're right that we are in a shared <laughs> universe aren't we <laughs> the, yeah the shared movies themselves not important but like you said that dna is there and and it is such a simple beginning. And I think we, like I was going to say, we talked about in Predator Minute a lot that making something appear that simple, like is a lot of work in itself. That means you're trimming away so much fat. You're trimming away character moments where you're hoping not to lose their humanity and not to lose interest in the characters, but still being able to drive the plot forward while, while enjoying the characters while caring about them. Um, And I would say this is, this is right up there with uh, some of the characters I care most about when I watched it all the way through it was, I really, oh, I really care about this guy, Kane. Like, I can't believe they're just killing him off. He's like, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. But yeah, I was, I was yeah, definitely, you definitely 
Yeah, you get sucked into this team, uh, similar to how you really kind of, uh, we don't know a lot about the character's uh, history in Predator, but we um, we get invested in them pretty quickly. And right. I, I feel like the same thing is happening here. We don't know a lot about the history of these characters. All we know is is what we can infer. And, and I love that, that that's sort of left open-ended. You know, we get this blue-collar crew. Um, yeah. Very, very blue-collar, right? And... Like these people yeah. are just, they're just doing a job. They're uh, over and over again. You know, we hear, we hear Parker and, um, and Brett, uh, Harry Dean mm-hmm. talk over and over again about their shares, about getting their bonuses. Like, I don't want to do this unless I'm getting paid. Like they are not yes. out here on some sort of diplomatic mission. Like they are mm-hmm. doing a job. They want to get back home in one piece. Nowadays, that doesn't seem so strange, but I think in 1979, that was a big turn in sci-fi films to have the characters depicted that way. Yeah. These are not explorers. They're not military. They're just simply uh, uh, like miners, essentially. Yeah. You're going from planetoid back to earth and just hauling whatever. I forget what they're hauling back. Some kind of ore, I think. Yeah. I, it just, it's not even explained that well, right? It doesn't really yeah. matter. They're just out doing like a, a kind of a shitty job, right? <laughs> right. I think a lot of people would be good that route. I think a lot of people can empathize with that for sure, which I think explains the success and the long lastingness of this movie is they're not just, they're not out there to pick a fight. They're just out there to just bring some rocks back to their home rock and, and call it good and just go eat some better food at home. Yeah. And it gives this film, it adds to this film's grittiness. You know, this is a very beautiful, like wonderfully photographed film. But there's also an edge to it. There's a grittiness to it. Our characters are a little rough around the edges. You know, you think of other sci-fi films that preceded Alien. Things like 2001, A Space Odyssey, you know, Star Trek, uh, Logan's Run, like these types of sci-fi futuristic films from the 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. And they all depicted a future world that was very clean, very polished right hmm. like you think about the the beautiful shots in 2001 a space odyssey and there were those interior hmm. shots of all the spaceships and they're all like pristine and everyone's walking around in white jumpsuits and <laughs> you know <laughs> sipping from teacups and it's all it, it, you know it's so formal and perfect and these guys are smoking cigarettes left and right they're mm-hmm. just you know throwing down MREs as fast as they can eat them. It's right. it's it's dirty. It's messy. It's you know they're they're getting the job done, and it, it's I think it really marks a transition for for sci-fi that ends up carrying over. I think Blade Runner has a lot to um, owe to Alien. I I, I think most a lot of the sci-fi movies uh, from the eighties and nineties owe a lot to Alien for kind of making that that leap for them. Yeah, another. Another Ridley Scott joint, yeah, Blade right. Runner. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So he's carrying over a lot of that. Yeah, the, a lot of those visuals. Should we talk about what's at stake? There you go. What's at stake? What's at stake? <laughs> uh, what is at stake here? I mean, there's a there's there's a lot at stake <laughs> for I mean, for our characters. A lot at stake, and uh, just within the movies, this is. Uh, the crew thinking they're past the worst of whatever Kane was going through, the worst of some kind of 
alien invasion because whatever attached itself to his face is now dead. So they might be thinking, oh, the danger is over. We're past it. Mm. Even though we broke protocol for quarantine, you know, you're supposed to follow the quarantine rules and uh, not do the dangerous things they did. But, you know, even though they broke the quarantine rules, it seems like they're fine. But by the end of the scene, it's just it's game over. Game over, man, for the rest of the crew. So this, the stakes are high, and uh, the villain essentially is, is unleashed. It, it changes, this scene changes everything for our characters, mm-hmm. right? But prior to the scene, it was they had one of their crewmates had been attacked by this face hugger thing. He was sick. Um, they just wanted to get the hell out of there, and their number one priority was to simply get home. Right Now, this scene happens the entire mission of these characters has switched to surviving. We need to hunt down this thing that's loose in our ship and somehow either kill it or get rid of it. And it has just killed one of our crew members and, uh, you know, everything has shifted. So, yeah. (laughs) What's at stake? All their lives. (laughs) All all their lives. Although the stakes couldn't be higher. This is truly a stake raising moment and, like you mentioned before, they're a bunch of blue collar schlubs. I'm not liking their chances. I'll just, if I'm watching the movie right here and I see that thing scurry off at the end of the scene, I'm thinking, Ooh, like I think they're alien chow. If they're not, uh, <laughs> they're not going to pull together very well. We'll see. Well, uh, speaking of, uh, you know, the blue collar, uh, thing, I do think it's interesting how, you know, I say that they're more of a blue collar crew, which they are, but not all of them are kind of blue collar workers. We have this very interesting dynamic of some of our characters being, you know, the boss being the captain, some of our characters being mm. scientists and some of our characters mm-hmm. being more like military officers and some of our characters being those blue collar workers. And I, I, you see a lot of the dynamics of those conflicts, the conflict of those roles uh, play out, you know, in the scenes leading up to the, the chest bursting. Yeah. That kind of, yeah, that, that, class struggle between like you're saying the white and the blue colors Ridley Scott does some pretty interesting stuff with camera work and framing of scenes where you kind of see characters mid conversation move around and sort of take sides with with people that kind of match their class level perhaps Um, you Mm -hmm. see the 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 blue collar workers Harry Dean Stanton and how do you pronounce his name? Yafit Kodo, who plays Parker. Who's yeah, also, Yafit Kodo. One, yeah, who's also one of the engineers. They kind of seem to be on the same page as they're, uh, you know, making their arguments about what they should do. And uh, so those, I, I don't know, I, I appreciate those subtle conflicts that occur within the crew. You know, it's it's really well done. This movie just has so many good details. Yeah, there's, there's a lot to this movie. You're really, uh, really selling me on maybe one day seeing it again. We'll, <laughs> we'll see. It's just, it's I, just, just, just so spooky. I watched this leading up to this episode. I watched this movie twice, and I also watched oh. a documentary about the making of. <laughs> yeah, I saw that show up on the on the Plex. Yeah, I really, uh, I really enjoyed it. I, I had fun rewatching this. Uh, I, it really cemented itself to me as just one of the great not just sci-fi films, but just one of the great films of the 20th century. It's fantastic. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a banger. It's a banger. Mm -hmm. It's uh, worth putting up there with, yeah, scary movies and legacy movies and just, what would you call them? Uh, Like pioneers. 
Yeah, game changer. Yeah, I, I, yeah, a game changer. Steak razor. So let's <laughs> should we get into it? Let's talk about the scene. You ready? I'm ready. Let's, let's talk about it. the scene. All right. I thought I could just keep on going talking about how awesome this movie is. So we should probably <laughs> break and uh, get into the scene. So we'll talk about part one here. We're gonna do minute 53 and 36 seconds up until minute 54 and 34 seconds, almost exactly one minute. So we begin. The previously unconscious Kane is now sitting up in the medical bed as the rest of the crew members talk to him. Ash provides him with cups of water as he recounts the last thing he remembered before being attacked by the face hugger. The crew updates him about where they are and where they are headed. We're on our way home. Yeah, back to the old freezerinos. <laughs> Kane expresses that before they go back to the old freezerinos, he needs to eat, and the rest of the crew agrees. And we'll stop there mm-hmm. for a moment. So this is where Kane wakes up. We didn't know if this was going to happen, and all of a sudden he gets back to consciousness. Yeah, we're, we're having Kane actually wake up for the the second time too. This is. Uh, it's this and the next part, part two of the scene are really copycats of the opening of the movie itself mm. when the crew wakes up from hypersleep. Right. Um, and then they have their first meal together after waking up. Uh, but yeah, um, the first time he woke up in the movie he says, I feel dead. And then <laughs> they have breakfast. Um, but this time in the, <laughs> when he wakes up, he's, he's just, Gulping down that water, he must be so dehydrated. We 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 don't know what happened with the whole face hugger at this point. We're just like, did we're we're, we're probably just as confounded as everybody in the ship, which I think is a really cool way to tell a story um, with minimal dialogue. Really, throughout the whole movie, we don't know what has happened to him. We don't know the biology of this alien. This isn't like something you saw in National Geographic, and you're like, oh, okay, well, the wasp <laughs> lays the egg in the host and then the whatever feeds on him no it's just at this point in the movie you're going to be just totally in the dark about what's going on uh, with kane yeah and the the whole the conceit of the face hugger is just such a fantastic way to to bring this alien on board like and they do such a good job of creating little details you know like you're sitting there like, why don't they just pull it off? Just pull it off. And in that, that first time that the face huggers on there and they, they cut into it, the, the acid blood, you know, hits the, the ship. And mm-hmm. every time they touch it, it tightens its grip on Kane's neck. And, uh, and so you, they just put those little things in there that makes you realize, Oh, they can't do anything. They can't touch this thing. And yeah. then you're just, you're you can't figure out why or how Kane is still alive while this thing is on his face. Like, how is he breathing? How is he still living? Um, and of course we, we come to learn that this is all part of the face huggers plan is it needs to keep the host alive, uh, but unconscious so that oh. it can plant its seed and, and uh, make it its host. And um, anyhow, so, the face hugger finally falls off and we think, Oh, okay. Maybe it's, it, it died. You know, maybe it's like a bee, you know, that when it stings you, it loses a stinger and it dies. Maybe that's a similar situation here. And we have a moment of hope, but uh, mm-hmm. we know that that can't last very long. 
<laughs> no, because we're only halfway through the movie at this point. Right. <laughs> we're like, okay, I guess we just watch them go home happy and they're fine. But then it wouldn't be the horror movie. Uh, yeah. The biggest horror of something latching to his face and that's it. No, there's, there's, there's definitely more to it. Um, but it, it gives us like a really, really false sense of really brief sense. Uh, or sorry, it's a really brief and false sense of security right. where, like you're saying, the face hugger's off. Like, okay, he appears to be fine, just really thirsty. He's joking around. People are updating him with what happened. And um, I forget, how long was he out? Like you three know, days, I think? Yeah, it's hard to tell. They don't really give a hard and fast timeline on it. But you get the feeling that it's a couple days. I Going back to what you said, I you're you're absolutely correct in that the parallels between this part of the scene and the very beginning of the movie. Yeah, oh, I feel dead. Anybody ever tell you you look dead? <laughs> or I had never quite put that together, but I think it was extremely deliberate, right? When mm-hmm. at the very beginning of the film, when we see all the beds open up and everybody wakes up and they're groggy, but then the very next thing we see is that them all sitting together and talking and laughing and enjoying food. And it gives us like that sense of relief, like, oh, all these people are okay. Mm-hmm. Flash forward, you know, 55 minutes into the movie now, and they repeat that exact same feeling, right? right. Kane wakes up, oh, he is okay. He's alive. Thank God. Whatever that face hugger was doing, it's done now. He seems to be okay. Now they're all eating together, and we'll get into the dinner part soon. But it really, by, by, kind of emulating the first part of the film you sort of subconsciously relax a little bit because you've seen this before this means everybody's okay we saw this we've seen them have dinner together it means we're all good and it really lulls you in like you said to that false sense of security and and then bam they're gonna hit us with it in just a moment Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah and and knowing like you mentioned before with Ash being an android, knowing that he's an android this time around, like even when Kane wakes up, like you can tell Ash is there as a crew member mm-hmm. and maybe expressing concern, but that's definitely a false concern. There's a lot of studied looks at him, at Kane in this part and the next part of the scene, just, just that kind of cold calculating cat-like stare. Oh yeah. From Ash, you mean? Yeah. From yeah. Ash. Yeah. Yeah. And that I know, and that's kind of what I was saying earlier. Like watching this again, knowing his role, knowing he's an android, makes every every time the camera cuts to him and he's staring at Kane, it feels mm-hmm. sinister, right? Whereas the mm-hmm. first time you watch through this, you maybe wouldn't have felt that way. Um, but it's right. so interesting rewatching this, knowing his character, and it's a pretty brilliant performance. Ian Holm, Bill Ian Holm. Thank you, Ian Holm. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's it's. Yeah, it's really great. Are we about to get into it <laughs> with the dinner? Yeah, we're, we're about to. I'd say my last little part for the first part is, uh, to me, like a lot of the crew members have like an innocence about them. They have this just like, I don't know, not innocence is necessarily the right word. Just more like, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of like not much of a jadedness to them, even though like they're doing it for the money. It seems like kind of like they're pretty light all around. But mm. I would say like Kane... Seems like, I don't know, to me, he, he gives off like a really young vibe, like a really youthful vibe. 
uh, not only like in his attitude, but his looks like he has like, especially when he wakes up, right? He looks like a little kid kind of when he wakes up, he looks like a little kid. He looks like a kind of just like a pimply teenager to me. Yeah. Cause uh, his face he, is all kind of red too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's, he's 39 years old here. So yeah. he's not a teenager by any means, but just like with like kind of the wet hair and kind of like, obviously the minimal like clothing he's wearing uh, from the medical bed. He's got a little jubilance to him, a little sense of relief on his face. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's eating like a teenager in the next part here. It's <laughs> like wolfing it down. <laughs> right. But yeah, it's, it's, it's all the more shocking what happens to him because he, he has that young appearance, that young energy of like, when it comes time to go down to the surface of the planet at first, he's like, I'm going to go down. I'm going to go down first. And I think it's Dallas who says, yeah, of course, of course you are like just, just, <laughs> right. just used to each other to that point where they know he's the kind of person to just dive really head first into these situations. Oh God. I love that sequence when they go down to the planet. Uh, if there was another scene I was going to talk about from this movie, <laughs> I would probably choose that. It was really great. <laughs> <laughs> this is a 45 minute scene from the right. <laughs> All right. Almost as long as Naked Gun movie. Anyway, <laughs> let's go to part two. Let's go to part two. So this is going to be part about two. a minute and a half. So from minute 54 and 35 seconds up until about 56 minutes flat, we cut to a scene similar to the first mealtime scene in the movie. The crew members are sitting around the table, eating all sorts of food, joking about eating food and other things. And looking forward mm. to returning home, Kane starts coughing and then he falls across the table onto his back. All back! Back! All while the other crew members crowd around him, trying, trying to support his fall. His seizure-like movements cause the crew to restrain his arms and put something between his teeth. Kane continues to convulse and scream. There it is. <laughs> we know what's going to happen next, but this is such a great build up to that moment and i love the transition this whole this whole dinner scene where they sit around the camera's kind of floating around they're all talking sort of on top of each other over each other it almost got like a real like robert altman vibe with the way the scene is constructed with the dialogue just sort of on top of one another you know it feels very realistic feels very natural and oh I mean, absolutely absolutely yeah, and so to have that all of a sudden broken up by this thing, this unnatural thing that's happening to him, he starts convulsing and everyone gets quiet. They start crowding around him and like that sense of dread just starts to build inside of you. I don't know about you, but no matter how many times I see this, this part always makes me sit up and just kind of move to the edge of my seat and be like, I want to see exactly what's going to happen in the next two minutes here, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, the camera does push in as mm -hmm. uh, Kane is taking his however many of helping of, of food of what looks like some kind of, I don't know, noodles. Um, he's just scooping it. And after Ash, so right before it pushes in, it shows Ash at first kind of like munching on something or drinking something and smiling. And then all of a sudden Ash's expression changes really in like a half second. I'm looking at 54, 52, where Ash goes from kind of smiling to just all of a sudden a really serious look, and he starts to yes. lean in. And what else leans in is the camera. The camera pushes in yeah. very much into Kane's direction as he's, again, joking around about the food. Um, and as soon as it pushes in on him and really puts him uh, in center frame, 
right? Yafit Koto continues joking. Yeah, well, it's not um, that bad. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it switches once more, I think, to Lambert here. Um, another time to Lambert as he's, yeah, Yafit's making sexual innu- innuendo and then, then back to uh, Kane yeah. one last time uh, as he starts choking. Just, it's just, just, yeah, as it's switching back and forth, even just watching it now, I'm like, oh, wait, is this the part where he starts choking? Okay, no, he hasn't started choking. Oh, no, he started choking. Because as soon as he starts choking, it's over. It's over. He's, he's going to, oh, there's, he's, there's he's no not going back. Be the same. Yep. Right. There's no going back. Back. Right. Yeah. You mentioned, um, Veron- uh, Lambert played by Veronica Cartwright. She's, she's the, the quiet MVP of this sequence, I think. Mm-hmm. Her, her reactions. But even before the scene gets going, her reactions to Parker's crew jokes, um, mm-hmm. and she's sitting there smoking that cigarette, um, is just great. And then her reactions during the the actual bursting of the chest, or I mean, it's all it's all timer. It's it's uh, it's it's locked it's all, it's down, all Veronica, in, uh, for sure. Yeah, it's so good. But um, yeah, no, you're right about the the camera moving in. I love it. It it just focuses all of a sudden we we shift tones and we focus all in on him and there's a moment when you think maybe he's just choking on food and then very quickly it becomes apparent that that is not the case if you're choking on food you don't start convulsing like you have a seizure oh uh, i was just gonna say his his screams his screams like stop being screams and they just turn they just turn into like this I don't know, like this kind of guttural moaning that's really terrifying. Uh, yeah, it's yeah, it's it's terrifying to hear. And right, if you were to hear someone go from screaming to just like grunting, like in real life, you would be similarly concerned. You'd probably be really terrified for that person. Like, oh no, like this is uh, definitely out of that person's control, and like something terrible has happened to them. That, right, they have no control over. Yeah, so Kane just continues to convulse and scream here, and you know we're very, we're going to probably very quickly get into part three of this scene because it's it's hard to, not to, but um, just setting up what we're about to see next is it's such a mastercraft of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Like the the camera switches uh, as he like lays down on the table, and now we're looking at him from above, and. Uh, yeah, and it says things are about to go awry, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. So good. I think the last thing he says before uh, everything else takes over is, the first thing I'm going to do when I get back is to get some decent food, <laughs> which, which I thought was just like this, I don't know, it, it, unintentionally funny lampshade almost to say, like, I'm at home. Like, the first thing I'm going to do, I'm gonna do when I go home is – whatever it's it's like kiss my wife or i'm two days away from retirement right right tomorrow's the last day of school i can't wait till the last day of school yeah it's it's like like that trope of like i'm almost there like yeah two days before retirement yeah that's a good call (laughs) the first thing that i'm gonna do when i get back is to get some decent food why'd you say that why'd you say that All right, I th- I think we might just need to jump into part three so we can really talk about the uh, the guts of the scene. <laughs> hey, hey! If you are our new, our, our new character, our eighth passenger. <laughs> if you are ready for that, I'm ready. Let's do it. All right, part three is going to pick up at 
about 56 minutes and one second and take us to the end of this scene, which is 56 minutes and 56 seconds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As Kane continues to convulse and scream, a red liquid sprays against the inside of his shirt, apparently from his own chest. This blood spray also goes through his shirt and towards the other crew members. Kane pauses before convulsing and grunting, no longer screaming, and for a few seconds more until something bursts through his shirt from his chest, showering the crew with much more blood. Cut to a close-up of the creature that erupted from Kane's chest cavity. It looks like a giant toothy earthworm, its tail coiled around itself. As Kane's hand gives post-mortem twitches, the creature uncoils itself and takes in its surroundings, despite having no visible eyes. Parker raises a knife to attack the creature, but Ash yells at him not to touch it. The creature emits a little squeal before scurrying across the table and out of the dining area, leaving the crew to wordlessly look at each other. End of scene. Mm. Mm. This is often referred to as one of the great sci-fi horror scenes or moments in, in any film. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious as to what do you think it is about this particular moment of this scene that that gives it that reputation? Ooh, that's that's a good question. I think for me in watching this and trying to step back and think about the the meta of it, I think well the audience hasn't really seen too much surprising or horrific in this about less than two hour movie, and we're halfway through. So I think a huge part of it is, is the shock of uh, yeah. seeing this all of a sudden, not just to the audience, but to the crew. The crew is genuinely like breathless, wordless. They don't know what to do. They don't know what to say. They don't know how to help them, especially once the chest bursting occurs. It, it, it is just a, a whole a whole great combination of like the shock, but also these amazing, amazing practical effects. Of, yeah. The right, the puppeted alien, like penis with teeth, basically <laughs> <laughs> bursting out of the chest all of a sudden, uh, bloodily and just yeah, in its own little mini climax of the scene. Um, and it's 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 again that practicality just yeah. nails it and and it makes it so feel many, so real. Yeah, so real. It's there. It's tangible. There's there like the crew or not the crew. Yeah, the film crew is spraying blood over everybody so you have that going too Uh, Mm. they just yeah you can tell they put so much work into it yeah we've talked about how the first half of this film really is a a slow burn Mm -hmm. and you're right it's it's it culminates with this or or perhaps gets punctuated by this scene and that slow burn that we've been sitting through and it's it's an excellent slow burn i think it's one of the the most beautiful like great beginnings to a sci-fi story that's ever been told. But mm-hmm. when this hits, we have, you're right. You have not seen anything like this in this film so far, nothing like this gore, nothing like these practical effects. Um, and yeah, it, it, because of the film sort of lulling you into this state of trance, almost um, you're shocked when this happens. Yeah. And um, and famously, uh, I see in your notes here, and I also read that the crew, they, I mean, they knew it were going to happen because they all read the script. But it's in the script, yeah. Yeah, but there was an element here where they didn't exactly know what it was going to look like or how much blood was actually going to be flying about. 
Yeah. And um, it seems like you can see that on the on the actors' faces here that they are genuinely surprised and somewhat horrified. Well, I, I was watching the with all the with the gap with the uh, caused by the technical difficulties, somewhat of a a blessing too, not just a curse. But um, apparently, this was um, not necessarily the first take, and and mm. um, when you. <laughs> sorry technicalities aside but you did mention this the first time around i'm remembering but uh the first time you see something punching through john hurt's chest that is the failed first take uh, oh, but they, right. they they loved that shot so much of just that surge it's just such a visceral bloody surge and like you just feel it before they cut back to the crew then they cut back to the real take i i i guess we'll call it where it actually the, breaks through the t-shirt. Where it breaks through the t-shirt, yeah. Um, but that's such a great reveal because because you see the blood spurting and then you see the the t-shirt. I love that actually because the t-shirt just sort of pokes up and it creates this moment where you're like, what the, you know, what is underneath there? What's causing that mm-hmm. to happen? Is that just like a fountain of blood that's making that happen? And they cut to the reaction of the crew and then they cut back really quick and you're right, we see that the real take or the second take, I suppose, where it actually breaks through the T-shirt. And it's just an awesome reveal there. Um, and the, the, that second or third take they're showing where, yeah, ultimately the hand puppet comes up with the alien. That was the part where they could finally like spray the crew with a lot of blood. And from the interviews, it sounds like um, the Veronica mm-hmm. Cartwright was the main Lambert was, was the main victim there of not knowing because uh, in the interviews, they yeah. were behind the scenes documentary. It sounded like Sigourney Weaver had a good idea. And um, I was going to say Dallas, Tom Skerritt had a, had a good idea of that too. Um, so really it sounds almost like they're kind of picking yeah. on Veronica Cartwright. Like, well, she's going to really lose it. Yeah, and it's her reaction that I think is the most genuine and the one that I always remember from this scene because they cut to her specifically right. when she gets sprayed with that blood and she's absolutely horrified. And and then as the creature pokes through, it's her voice that we hear that that is saying like, I can't remember what it is exactly, but it's like, oh my God. Oh my God. Yeah, it's it's like someone would really say if they saw that, they would they'd be in shock. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, and that sounds 100% genuine. Either she's actually shocked or she's a really good actress, p- perhaps both. Oh my God. But man, uh, that's what I, whenever I think about this, this moment, I think about her reaction and her scream there as it's happening. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's chilling. It, it's, I think that's part of what really makes it iconic is not just the graphicness that we're seeing on display, but how they're reacting. And that's how you would, I think most people would react. They would be revolted. They would be like leaning way far, like as far away as they can from this. They would not be just action hero, dive in and grab it and snap its neck. They would, they wouldn't have any clue what to do because this is just, we've mentioned before, just kind of the group of space truckers, basically. Right. Like (laughs) this is far beyond what they're being paid for, far above their pay grade. Far above their pay grade. Yeah. Exactly. So, so what are they going to do? Well, Yafit Koto tries to grab a knife, but like, what is he going to do? Is he going to stab this thing? Like, yeah. And that's the reaction, right? Is wait, don't touch it. And we've already seen, I I think that reaction is probably um, based off of seeing the, what happened when they cut into the chest or or the, excuse me, the face hugger. 
and that right. acidic blood or whatever came out of it. And uh, so it's like, you know, don't touch it because the same thing might happen. Well, I think you, I think you could also argue that not only like to us, the audience watching it for the first time, hearing Ash, the science officer saying, don't touch it, don't touch it makes it seem like, okay, he's watching out for the welfare of the crew, but we learn later on yeah, his whole mission yeah. is to bring this thing back alive. So he's also... Right. So there's a double meaning there for sure. Yeah. Oh, it's... it's yeah. it's. <laughs> I, th- I think the only thing I can't really... like. I think the only thing that takes me out is when the alien runs away along the little... Across the table? Yeah, across the little table track. Uh, you can kind of see it, but in the behind the scenes, you can really see, see the table track where it's like a little, basically a little rail, just a right. cut in the table. Um, but <laughs> that part, that part always makes you laugh. It does. It, that is the only part where the practicality of the effects can sort of be seen. It reminds, it reminds me of this. Is it the spoof in Spaceballs where you see the, the little creature sort of run across the table? Oh no. Not again. Yeah, the little creature and, with the eyes, keep in mind. Uh yeah. 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 But but in that Hello, in that spoof you can Hello, Hello. Yeah, exactly. And you can actually if you look at that scene you, in the spoof in Spaceballs, you can actually see like the little stick that's poking up from the table that's moving this puppet yeah. back. Oh, it's so forth. good. <laughs> yeah. It's so good. Not and yeah, it's worth noting that in both versions it's John Hurt playing the chest bursty if you will <laughs> but other than that i give massive amounts of credit to this creature design when it pokes up from the chest and we get the first glimpse of to what this thing looks like it it is genuinely uh scary and off-putting and the way that little creature doesn't really have eyes but it opens its mouth and turns its head around sort of in it, in whatever way it does, like surveying its environment and figuring out what what it needs to do or where it needs to go, I know that when I saw this, I had never seen any sort of monster or creature design that was like this. And I think that uniqueness adds a, a just another layer of of horror to this to this moment in the scene. Yeah, I, I think what else yeah. adds to the horror in the moment is there's no score. This mm-hmm. is all done. That's a good point. Yeah, it's just totally atmospheric all you hear is the cruise sound you know that constant spaceship sound of just modules modulating or whatever they do and computer terminals just kind of buzzing there's man all the times i've watched this over and over again for this recording i actually did not put that together i didn't really notice that the absence of the score yeah but you're right that that makes a big difference for some reason i thought there was a score here when i watched it the first time but Watching over and over right now, like, I don't know, like some weirdo watching this graphic scene. But <laughs> <laughs> well, we're doing a podcast, that's why. But there's, yeah, yeah, just no soundtrack. And that's that takes that takes some balls, I think, by uh, the director, the composer, what have you, of not trying to, you know, seduce the audience into a similar fear feeling is, is uh, letting the scene do that work. And, and I'm a big fan of when they can do that and turn off the score. It's a, it's a good score, like nonetheless, throughout the rest of the movie by Jerry Goldsmith. But here, right, like I don't I don't know what you put in there. I mean, modern day, of course, we know what track would go in there now. It'd be the guile theme that da 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 da. It doesn't. Yeah, it helps that I just edited the Rambo 
episode released that with Mickey right, Rail, but right. if, if they're anywhere where there was a Guile score in this movie, that would be it. Probably where his shirt bursts with the blood. And then, of course, Ripley taking on the alien at the end. Sure, sure. So we would be remiss to not point out that um, the idea behind this creature and, and having them burst through the chest of its host was based on uh, real-life parasites that exist in our world. And and when I watched the documentary about Alien and they were talking about H.R. Geiger's influence on the creature design, they talked a lot about how he was very interested in the idea of um, there's, a, there's a lot of uh, bees, certain species of bees that use other insects and other small uh yeah other small insects to implant their eggs and force them to be a host and that's how they reproduce and this is actually a thing that occurs in nature quite a bit with with insects um and that alone is just so like gives me a shiver down my spine thinking about it so gross Uh, yeah and that was a part of the inspiration for this is what if there was another organism in the universe that did the same thing, this human uh, species that just happened to find it inadvertently becomes the host for the next generation. Yeah. Uh, I I think there's some kind of wasp I was reading about in research that like lays its eggs in the spider and then it paralyzes the spider so that it's still alive. So it's not rotting when the, Babies are eating it. And I'm sorry if you're eating during the just terrifying. alien chestburster scene talk here, but I mean you really shouldn't be. There's <laughs> yes. yeah, I, come on, people. The thing I'm drinking right now is called sangria, of course, which is you know means blood in I forget what language. Uh, so mm. I thought that was kind of fitting, but really don't Apropos. be. I do have some red wine myself. Hey, there too, you so. go. Yeah, there's, there's the blood. There's the blood symbolism. Drinking from the cup of. <laughs> Instead of burning it, <laughs> but you can. So I wrote down some notes too about other I, other places this might have come. Um, okay. Um, the one that I felt that was the closest was by author A. E. Van Vogt, who wrote the short story Discord and Scarlet. And I'll go ahead and just kind of summarize what I have written here because it's yeah, it'll be harder for me to summarize. I'll just read off. The ship comes sure. across Ixtal a scarlet being floating in deep space. It is a vicious survivor of a race that ruled a previous universe, universe, Sangria talking, universe, before the Big Bang, the creation of our own universe, Ixtel boards the ship and being obsessed with its own reproduction, kidnaps several crew members in order to implant parasitic eggs in their stomachs. It's eventually tricked into leaving the ship after all the crew have left the ship ship temporarily, leaving no prey left for its offspring to feed on. Oh, but then, but then there's other ones where it's, uh, what is it? No, not that one. Not that one. Yeah. I guess that's the one I, I thought there was one where specifically it had the alien bursting out of the chest, but like alien spaceship horror is nothing new at this point in 79. Um, during the, uh, during the Cold War, like the height of the Cold War, like in the 50s and 60s, it was very, very popular to make these sci-fi horror stories or just yeah, sci-fi stories in general that were definitely playing with this idea that using Soviet, the Soviet Union as an analogy or as an analogous bad guy of disguising the hidden horror, of disguising the enemy, uh, usually in plain sight, usually by having that enemy take the form of a good guy. Uh, Philip K. Dick wrote a lot of stories like this. I read a lot of Philip mm. K. Dick back in the early 2000s. And 
if you watch any kind of like 50s and 60s Twilight Zone, you'll see a ton of references to the Cold War, just really overt, but like in space, like, oh, this this person's been the alien all along. Right, right. But I think what this movie does so well is um, it's not going for just like super duper low bed, low budget looks, like whereas the Twilight Zone kind of had to. It was like, oh, that's the bad person, and they're just a bad person. That would, you know, it, it gave form, it gave shape to that fear. Um, and if they did it wrong, uh, if they're using the original designs of what looks kind of like a headless raw turkey, uh, then right, that this isn't the iconic scene and iconic movie um, that it is. Yeah, and that theme plays out in sort of two ways in this film, doesn't it? One with the Kane being the host for our alien uh, offspring, but then also Ash being the the uh, unknown android that has infiltrated the crew that has um, an ulterior motive here. So I kind of see those things you just described kind of in two different ways in this Yeah, movie. Interestingly enough, Ash was not originally in the original script by Ed O'Bannon. It, it, oh, really? He was, he was a later addition. Um, I think oh. with the rewrites and with Ridley Scott, Ridley Scott, the kind of director, I'm sure, you know, who's like, he has to have his hands in everything, whether it's the score, production, sure. the writing, the actors. Thank God. Yeah, thank God. <laughs> thank God. Uh, good stuff. Okay, so. Um, we can talk about a couple other things. Okay, so for, for one, a yeah, little ahead, trivia about, let's be really meta about scene at all. If you look at the scene at all picture um, for this podcast oh, our, our art our, our art, art if you will yeah. the art i created for this podcast you'll notice a few scenes if you, you'd have to zoom in i made it really low resolution on purpose so it doesn't look like i'm just kind of lifting scenes <laughs> um, but the first three episodes i knew what they were when i was making the art and i didn't know the other like the next two episodes four and five so i just kind of guessed but the first three episodes we did were terminator 2 the river chase so you see arnold jumping off upper area of the river in la excuse me, and his motorcycle. The second one is Lopan firing some magic during the mm. arcade battle in Big Trouble in Little China. Uh, the third one is Jackie Chan taking on the bad guys in the hideout. And then the fourth one I didn't know, so I just put in when Harry met Sally at the diner, mm. that classic scene. Great scene. I'll have what Great she's scene. having. Yeah. Uh, and then mm-hmm. the fifth one is this scene, is the chest burster scene from Alien. Very prophetic of so you. So even though in the song, I talk about Harry Dean being taken out by the Xenomorph. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I really needed something that rhymed with scene and Harry Dean. Like, yeah, John Hurt <laughs> just doesn't really rhyme. <laughs> right. But all the same, like it's coming kind of full circle on that. It's in the art. It's uh, in the song. And now we did the episode. And now, we, now we're doing the episode. Now we're talking about it. So I want to make sure to, to give it to due. Um, something I made mention in one of the first pieces, one of the first notes I rewrote after our technical problems were this idea of body horror, of media really playing with that idea of the human body itself being a vessel for creating horror in the minds of people. Like what, like we talked about the wasp and it'd be kind of sick thinking about that. Like, it is such a sickening feeling to think like, oh, your body is hosting this thing that will burst out and kill you. Uh, and But before that, though, it like needs you to live and it's feeding off what you're giving it. And then I wrote a few other examples. Um, and then you can definitely talk more to this because I don't I know what body horror is, but I'm way less likely than you to actually partake in that media. <laughs> yeah, well, body horror really 
be, came to prominence in in horror like in the 70s and most people point to David Cronenberg as being the one that that really like took the reins and ran with it and you know Cronenberg had this pretty amazing run of films in the 70s they were low budget smaller movies but they're pretty beloved in in horror community um which was uh Shivers and Rabid and uh shoot I'm forgetting one more um and uh, and then of course he kind of rises to prominence as like kind of a go to horror director and and he makes yeah Cronenberg I had the whole list of his movies in my head he makes Videodrome uh, and Scanners uh, with the famous head exploding scene <laughs> uh, and then it all culminates with The Fly which I think is like the greatest body horror film ever made and in my personal favorite uh, Cronenberg film mm-hmm. but. Um, when when these films started to become popular and uh, people realized they could make money and uh, uh, garner attention, it, it kind of became a little bit of a, a fad in the late seventies and and into the mid eighties to do more sort of body horror uh, films. And um, along those lines, you made a little list here of some other movies that feature like chest, like stomach burster type scenes yeah. that that have like a you know, a body horror bent to them. And um, I'm guessing you probably haven't seen most of these movies. <laughs> well, I, I have seen out of these movies, Total Recall. I mentioned Quado, the yeah, sure. alien. Yeah. And then Lenny, of course, the the mutant with the the mutant taxi driver with like the Yeah, that is, that, that is a very, that's a very sort of on the nose carryover from the body horror trend. To see that in a mainstream action movie is kind of unheard of these days. Right. Um, I mean, Total Recall is such a unicorn in terms of action movies anyway, but for them to throw in like that body horror element, I just love that about it. Um, right. I even think yeah, about that, the two weeks scene where Arnold is hiding yeah. within like the passenger's, you know, fake body, but like that splits apart. And that's like right away, mm-hmm. I'm sure creating some nightmare fuel for people. Sure. And it, and the way that's done, because it's practical effects, just l- looks strange and odd yeah. and like off-putting, which is what you want, really. Right. And like uh, you said, it's Verhoeven who, you know, snuck some body horror there with not only Total Recall, but you have Super Trooper, not Super Troopers. <laughs> oh, my God. Starship. Starship Troopers. And of course, Robocop, the excellent yeah. uh, toxic waste guy. Yeah. And also just the idea of taking a human and like turning him to half man, half machine like that is in its own, you know, elements of body horror right there. Wait. And even in RoboCop, isn't the toxic waste guy saying, help me. Yeah. Isn't that what the fly says? What Jeff Goldblum says? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I wonder if he's paying tribute a little bit. Perhaps. Yeah. But okay. The other movie I, I've seen a few times on this list is the thing, which I know is a personal favorite of yours. Sure. Yep. Right. It's in the aliens doing all sorts of crazy things to the, the people's bodies. Yep. That's, that's like, you know, an alien fully taking over, not just making a body, a host to like spawn, but really just taking over a body and completely transforming it into something else. Um, arguably the most uh, terrifying of all body horror situations. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. But uh, just to mention a couple on the list you made here, because you had some good sort of deep cut horror movies that I was uh, proud of you for. Um, Thanks. Yeah, you had um, Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Extro, 
Uh, have you ever seen Extro? By I don't think you have. Extro. Extro. Wait, I made this list. Uh, it's in your notes. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I see it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Extro is bonkers. It is absolutely <laughs> out of the out of its own mind. Um, but it's a great like midnight movie, super weird horror film with a lot of really fantastic special effects that do involve like this weird alien creature, um, essentially killing everybody and and it births itself uh from another human in one of the strangest most disgusting scenes you'll ever see in a horror movie mm. um you also put on here humanoids from the deep which is a weird little um a weird little uh low budget horror film from the early 80s that i've seen once and it just popped up on shutter because joe bob just did humanoids from the deep and i i need to rewatch mm. it uh, with the Joe Bob perspective, but that's another strange one about these creatures that come out of the the water and just start terrorizing uh, all the people that are right there. It's also quite uh, a little problematic um, in that the humanoids that are from the deep come on and they rip off the clothes of any woman that's close to them and essentially oh. rape them. And oh no, um, yeah, and it you know. In true to early 80s form, it was a cheap way to put nudity in the film. But watching it now, you're like, whoa, that's uh, that's uh, not okay. <laughs> not okay, <laughs> okay, humanoids from the not deep. Not okay, humanoids from the deep. Despite your title, um, you, you're above that. <laughs> uh, but anyhow, uh, the whole point is here is that uh, I think a trend towards body horror was building through the 70s. I think Alien capitalized on it, probably did it in one of the better ways that's ever been done. And that trend continued through the 80s. Uh, and we see it taper off as we get towards the 90s. But um, yeah, pretty interesting sort of subgenre within uh, horror that uh, a lot of people are really interested in. So yeah, there's my little body horror uh sidetrack there nice and you're saying you think the one that did it the best was the fly is that your favorite of the the body horror movies yeah i think i think the the peak the where where we uh where we topped out in terms of best done best story best effects um and it's also a heartbreaking story about a have you ever seen the fly no 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 but i did listen to great podcast ruined where they um, analyze the fly. fly. Yeah. Yeah. The fly is great because it's just about a scientist who's working on this teleportation device. And um, he also is kind of striking up a, a a budding romance with Gina Davis. But anyhow, he kind of, they get into an argument one night and he gets a little drunk and he's only tested this teleportation device on animals. And, um, never on a human and he decides to test it on himself and it works. His teleportation device works. But what he did not realize is that a common house fly flew into the portal with him and the computer wasn't sure how to handle two organisms. And when it re uh, attached all the uh, pieces, it just spliced the DNA and, uh, and he comes out and slowly, erodes and reemerges as this human sized fly creature. 
And you just sort of watch the evolution of that happen. And it's disgusting and also heartbreaking and uh, painful. And because uh, it happens slowly and they show like painstakingly how like what's happening to his body as it sort of deteriorates. And uh, anyway, uh, not to get into it too much, but it's it's a fantastic film. Don't get me wrong, but um, it's uh, not for the faint of heart if uh, that sort of thing is troublesome to you. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm a little faint of heart. But OK, so I didn't watch that, but I did watch the Ninja Turtles in the 80s. Oh, sure. That's pretty close. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and there's one famous Turtles villain, Baxter Stockman. For one, he invents the Mousers, which, like, frankly, kind of blow up in his face. Uh, but those mm. are a fun invention. But two, he becomes like a fly human hybrid uh, oh. like, partway through the first season, I think, by the exact same accident by like a fly no way. flying really? into the teleporter. Did, did you not watch Ninja Turtles in the... No, games? well, I did, but I mean, I was eight, so I don't remember. <laughs> did you ever play Turtles in Time? You know, Turtles 4 for the SNS? Yes, yes. Like the like the uh, arcade version, the side-scroller yeah, type yeah, of yeah, deal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the first yeah. stage, Big Apple, 3 a.m., the boss is Baxter Stockman as the fly. Oh, shit. Okay. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, he was a, a recurring character in in the show. Like, I, I, it's it's so random now that I'm thinking about how they took this really famous like fly scene and they just made it into like a canonical cartoon bad guy. It's so funny. Uh, yeah, for kids. Right. <laughs> oh, also in turtles for in turtles in time. I'm just thinking about it, but there are yellow versions of the xenomorph in the sewer level that attack you. I, I remember that too. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that too. Yeah, okay. They're just they're just ripping off everything left and right, and the kids are probably saying, "Like, like, what's that's crazy? What a crazy invention by the turtles!" But no, no, they're just borrowing from their favorite body horror movies. <laughs> <laughs> they must have been horror fans, those writers. That doesn't surprise me. Comic book, uh, video game nerd guys, they like the horror movies. Yeah, for sure. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that's super interesting. All right. Well, see our. Um, Alien runs uh, runs deep and runs far into our pop culture. There it is. Yeah, our, our beloved alien mythos. Did you ever, speaking of alien mythos, so this becomes a huge franchise, like it does. much in the same way as Star Wars two years earlier. Not to the scope, nothing's to the scope of really Star Wars in terms of like an IP that just blows up into this all-encompassing property. Sure. Um, but like Alien becomes Aliens, of course, like the sci-fi action movie. Um, it, you know, it goes on to to Alien 3 and a few other movies, some prequels there, uh, but also some video games, some comics and some novels. Did you ever partake in any of the novel readings? I, I will say I read some novels of Aliens. <laughs> Wow, did you really? Yes. Uh no, I um I I came to the Alien franchise late um as I, I discussed earlier, but um I for a long time and and perhaps still I love Aliens um as probably one of my favorite entries in this franchise. I, after rewatching Alien now twice and watching the documentary, I appreciate this movie more than I ever have before and mm -hmm. it it might be my favorite now in the um in the in the franchise but aliens is gets to my heart uh, as like a sci-fi action movie and i i love it 
so much and bill paxton is just fantastic in it oh so and um, yeah and and i watched i've watched all the sequels i i've seen alien 3 um which is okay but a little bit long and uh definitely takes a turn in terms of like the tone and the story um and i'm pretty sure i saw alien resurrection at some point but i've couldn't tell you anything about it i think i only saw it once and then of course the alien versus predator movies uh are uh, <laughs> terrible um but uh no i never delved into the comic books or really into the any video games either to be honest yeah yeah i think it was because i used to be a reader somewhat so i used to mm. like read books you know how that goes um as a parent but uh yeah i definitely read some books aaron and i brother of the show aaron um, and I started a, a little WhatsApp back and forth, like not too long ago, but it was actually like basically right after you chose alien as the next movie in the next scene mm. is crazy timing. He started asking about like, Hey, do you remember reading these aliens books? And I totally did. And I read some predator books too. Although I think those are AVP books, but all the same mm. there, I thought they were really good. I think the one that really struck a, memory cord for me was an aliens book called earth hive uh, where the um, you know, the, the evil earth army is trying to train these aliens to be weapons for them and, you know, predictably backfires. Uh, but, but all the same, I, I seem to remember the book really selling the horror of aliens, even though I, I, don't, I don't think I had seen alien, maybe some parts of aliens, but I had not seen alien, but all the same, it's such a cultural touchstone, right? You can show someone like doing a little, chest thing and they're thinking oh that's alien that's chest burster right right how where do you land on the more recent alien sequels do you have a strong opinion about prometheus or alien covenant that came out in the 2010s i didn't watch covenant i did watch prometheus though and i, I thought it was i thought it was pretty interesting because that was a ridley scott film right yeah, I, I've always been a, a an apologist for those two movies. I, I think they're fun and uh, take us back into the alien verse um, in a way that I think is uh, enjoyable. Uh, I know a lot of people shit on those movies and I, I always felt like people were just being a little too picky about what they wanted from an alien movie. But I, I just want a good sci-fi action film with creatures and uh, and, and, you know, uh, gore and death and and fighting and right. you know and and uh, it delivered. So I, I I am an apologist for those two movies. I think they're pretty good. Yeah, um, I remember watching Prometheus and thinking like this is so bonkers. This is nothing like the original movies. And I think that it, it benefits from that from being such a different feeling movie where you're just like what is, what is going on? Okay, is this a prequel? Is it kind of a prequel? Yeah, I mean they're labeled as as the prequel series. Um, right. If you look on like Wikipedia, and they they cite Prometheus and Alien Covenant as being prequels. Um, and I, I, if you're deep into the Alien verse and you understand all of it, you can probably explain it better to me. I just looked at it more as like an interesting like story that involved this species of alien right um and and for that i i enjoyed it. it they do kind of recycle a lot of the same themes as the first movie you know a crew touches down on a planet and they find <laughs> eggs and then they all fucking die <laughs> you know like it's right. sort of the same idea but uh i don't know that's what made the movie good and uh, 
I'll go with it again. Sure. Well, that Prometheus movie, I think one of the selling points for that for me was the cast. I really mm-hmm. enjoy the cast from Fastbender to who's it? Is that yeah, Numi Rapace or is that someone else I'm thinking of? Oh gosh. I can't remember. I think it is. No, if it's know. not, I'll delete that name and yeah. put in the right name, but also had Rafe Small. <laughs> I really like him. It had, who is it? Sean Harris from the mission impossible movies. It had Idris Elba, uh, yes. had, gosh, what's her face from? Yeah. Mad Nomi Repace, Michael Fassbender, Sh- uh, Charlie Theron, yeah. Idris Elba, Guy Pierce. Guy Pierce. And like, I love how just like you watch that movie and it's, it's to me, it's just like a huge experiment of like, well, what can really Scott just get away with basically? What can he pull yeah. off? And it's like, well, we'll, yeah. we'll take a young actor, Guy Pierce, well, you're youngish and like, totally age him up and like really never show him as a young person. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> why not just cast an older actor? It's like, well, that's really Scott there. Like you just, you don't question right. such an established director. It's, it, it, to me, it really, really reminds me of uh, George Lucas and his prequels for star Wars, where those are just totally different movies from the original trilogy. Yeah. And alien covenant was also a really Scott film. Okay. Um, and also has Michael Fassbender in it, ah. um, along with Catherine Watterson, Billy Crudup, Danny McBride, uh, among uh, many others. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I enjoy those movies. I, I recommend them. If you are a casual fan of the franchise, I definitely say check them out. I think they're pretty interesting. Cool. I'll, I might check out Covenant or I might just watch The Kill Count by James A. Jenny. <laughs> there you just, go. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. That one looked a little bit scarier. Um, I did notice, not notice, I'm sure this is trivia everybody knows, uh, but I believe the naming convention of the androids in the movie is supposed, in the movies are supposed to go alphabetical where the first one, release order that is, the first one is Ash with an A and the second one is Bishop with a B. Uh, I don't know who the C android is. Maybe you can fill me in with there, but I know. Gosh, I don't remember. David yeah. is in Prometheus. So who, right, who is the right. C? Is it who is the C? Who is the hmm. C? Write into the show at cnlpodcasts yeah. <laughs> at gmail dot com, and we'll uh, take your answers off the air. Let us know. Right. I so could Google it, but I mean, what is the point? <laughs> you don't want to hear two guys googling uh, alien facts. Yeah. Um, Here it is. It's call. We talk. It's call an alien call. resurrection. There you go. Yeah. There you go. So we know the fifth one now is going to be. Eeyore. <laughs> Elmer. <laughs> Ernest. <laughs> uh, should we talk about movies from 1979 here? Hey, let's talk about 1979, my birth year. Hey, oh, this is the first movie we've discussed that's from the 70s, isn't that right? Yeah, so this is our earliest discussed movie so far. Yeah. So should I go through top 10 here? Top 10 films of 1979. Let's do it. A lot of a lot of films for grown-ups here. Um, number one was Kramer versus Kramer, followed by The Amityville Horror, mm-hmm. followed by Rocky Two, mm-hmm. Apocalypse Now, Star Trek: The Motion Picture, Alien, Heyo, Ten, which is a movie I had never heard of until I saw this list, uh, The Jerk, Moonraker, and The Muppet Movie. Hmm. So I've seen a few of those, but as is the case with other 80s movies that we've discussed, this is much more of an adult list than uh, yeah. you would find in like the 90s and now. That's the thing. I had seen all, I've seen all the movies on this list except for this movie called 10, 
which I didn't know about. And then I, when I looked it up, it was like a sort of a like drama um, was nominated for a lot of awards that year, kind of a, you know, showcase for dramatic acting, I think, mm-hmm. but, but that's the only one I've never seen. Yeah. Um, I, let's see. I, I'm seeing a through line, Jerry Goldsmith, who composed the music for alien also composed, mm. composed the music for star Trek, the motion picture, which uh, includes that iconic, iconic next generation theme that. All right. Beautiful. Like what else stands out for, for me? I'm thinking not a whole lot else. I'll, I'll, I'll run through some of the, like the also rands out of, outside of the top 10. Yeah. Wait, I just got to mention that yeah. Moonraker made the top 10. <laughs> yeah. Also one of the worst James Bond movies ever. I hate Moonraker. But notice <laughs> so what they're boring. Notice what they're doing. It's James Bond in space. Space. In space. Oh my God. Like, you're right. You know, who are we thinking for that? We're thinking this. We're thinking alien. Not we're thinking mm. for, for Moonraker, for alien, for Star Trek, the motion picture. I'm not going to argue. I'm not going to say that's an argument. I'm going to say that's a surefire bingo right there. That's a bingo. Um, you're that's thinking bingo. Star Wars from 1977 for this boom of sci-fi movies of space. Yeah. Movies. Even though Ridley Scott is going to attribute things like, Texas Chainsaw Massacre for like, you know, the slasher, uh, slasher tropes. He's going to thank 2001 A Space Odyssey for like kind of the long meandering. He's going to also thank Star Wars. And then this is 20th Century Fox, of course, who produced Star Wars. And then, of course, Alien. And then later on down the road, Predator. Um, But we're we're thinking we're thinking Star Wars. Thank you, Star Wars. That's basically what I'm saying. Yes. Thank you, Star Wars. They were pretty um, open in saying that, you know, with the success of Star Wars, uh, pretty much any sort of space-bound, uh, uh, you know, sci-fi film was kind of getting greenlit at the time. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, this is just, you know, they happen to knock this one out of the park and actually make a fantastic film. Including, know. of course, Moonraker, <laughs> like <laughs> as you mentioned. <laughs> so dumb, God. But it did, it did give some good Jaws scenes, uh, the, the big bad guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you have to love Jaws. He's just the Gotta love Jaws. Yeah. I always like shooting him, playing Goldeneye. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Versus Odd Job, he's like, yeah, way down there. Yeah, I had to like turn the camera down. It was, uh, he's hard to hit. <laughs> uh, let's see. Some other notables from 1979, The Warriors. Oh, come Directed by Walter Hill, who also produced... Yep. Alien. Yep. Warriors come out to play. And which also stars, of course, the guy who is killed by Arnold and Commando. He drops him. Remember when, yes, remember when nice. I said I was going to kill you last? I lied. Remember, Sally, when I promised to kill you last? That's what made you. You did. I lied. I lied. I lied. <laughs> Let's see some other ones that stand out. Mad Max. I, I, yes. I, speaking of like naming conventions, I, is Mad Max the first one or is Road Warrior the first one? Mad Max is the first one. Okay. It and then it was Road Warriors. Like was really released as as Mad Max Two Road Warrior. Uh, but in the U.S., I think it was just released as Road Warrior. Okay. I'm not positive on that, but I'm pretty sure. And the third one is Rambo Three. <laughs> Rambo Three, <laughs> First Blood Part Seven. <laughs> So it's the first one, but the second 
part. Um, also, I remember All Quiet on the Western Front. Like, I, I seem hmm. to remember watching that one in school somehow. Like, I did too. What I a, did too. It has, it's pretty. Because we read the book. They made us read the novel. We didn't read the book in school. We just watched the movie. Oh, boy. And and like what stands out to me from that movie is it was Henry Thomas, I think. He's he's the American soldier and he's like stabs a German soldier in the foxhole. And like the guy just like dies a slow death and he just is hanging out with a corpse for a portion of the movie. Uh, There's a really (laughs) change, change gears here. Uh, The Frisco kid. That was a really fun movie. It's like a, a Western slash comedy, a little bit of drama that has Gene. Who is it? Gene. God, what is his name? Hackman? No, no, no. From. Gene, Gene Wilder, Gene Wilder, yeah. Gene Wilder. So Frisco kids, everyone out there is so angry at us right now. <laughs> Gene Roddenberry, mm. no, Eugene Levy, Gene, no. Gene Wilder was in the Frisco Kid. I've never seen it. Gene, and, and that's a fun, just kind of like Sunday afternoon movie. It's like a really light-hearted western with. Gene Wilder and Harrison Ford and Harrison Ford is kind of like the gruff uh, cowboy kind of begrudgingly taking along this oh, rabbi, nice. this, this rabbi Gene Wilder, you know, <laughs> to where he needs to go. And it, 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 that's a, that's just kind of a fun little Sunday, Sunday afternoon movie. Uh, I see you skipped over phantasm. Yeah. One of the, <laughs> one of the great strange uh, horror movies of the late seventies. I love Phantasm. It does not make a lick of sense, and somehow it spawned five sequels oh, <laughs> or four sequels. Um, but the uh, I actually love those movies for what they are. They are crazy. But the first Phantasm is such a fun watch. It just it's just operates completely on dream logic. Um, you never really know if you're seeing actual events that are taking place in the movie or if he's having a dream and, uh, just read the synopsis of that movie. And, uh, if you don't want to watch it based on the synopsis and that movie's not for you. <laughs> well, here, here's the tagline. If this one okay. doesn't scare you, you're already dead. <laughs> wow. That's quite an accusation to make, but yeah, seriously, I'm just going to go with it scares me. Are you a fan of Meatballs starring Bill Murray? I've never seen it. Wow. Yeah. That was one that my anytime it was on cable and my dad was flipping channels and it was on, he would stop and we would watch Meatballs together. That's like a classic, like tropey summer camp movie. Okay. With just like just a vehicle for Bill Murray being Bill Murray. Um, oh, and Ivan goofy. Reitman is the director uh, also of Ghost, Ghostbusters. Yeah, yeah. It's a goofy, but it has some great scenes. Bill Murray's fantastic. You know, like a lot of these like late 70s or 80s comedies, like the plot doesn't really matter. You're just really watching it to uh, Bill Murray interact with all these kids at the camp. And it's pretty fun. And there's some nudity, you know, and some swearing. It's a good time. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have to check that one out. Yeah. 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 It's, it's good. All right. All right. Well, um, Anything else to add here about 1979 before we kind of start to wrap things up? Oh, okay. The last thing I'll say about the scene is that um, despite its inspiration coming from so many other of these um, sci-fi books, I noticed a lot of the inspirations themselves, the person would survive. I think what made it in this movie more terrifying is that John Hurt clearly dies. 
Kane dies horrifically. He's given the death twitches after the alien is born, runs out, and they're shooting his body off into space, much like Star Trek would copy them later on. Yeah, um, there's really no question about it, is there? Like, no, he's just dead. Yeah, he's dead. He's covered in blood. He's doing the, the oh, just just to, again adding to that layer of terrifying of not only the crew's reaction and the no score, but also Kane, given the the, the post mortem twitches, just, just clearly gone, clearly yeah, ripped to pieces. And and what this reminded me of in like modern day, also, I just couldn't help but think of the body horror. Also, was an episode of um, the next generation Star Trek. Uh, there's an episode called mm. Conspiracy where Riker and Picard go down to Starfleet, uh, like the home base, and they're hearing that there's some weird stuff going on to the point of one of the admirals, I think one of the head admirals, um, and then like a lower down officer being infected, literally infected with this bug that blows up the body of one of the officers and then Riker and Picard have to phaser it. I remember seeing that like in the late eighties, early nineties with my dad. And that was like giving me nightmares. But if you watch like that scene of them taking that out, that creature out with their phasers set to kill, like you can't help but think of alien. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. All right. I think we're going to do our favorite segment. Is it better (laughs) than predator followed by recommends? And then you are going to reveal the next movie. I am, yes, after a long, long wait, I'm going to reveal the next movie in the next scene. But until then, yeah, is this better than Predator? Are you, are, should I go first? If you'd like, uh, whatever you want. Okay. What do you think? Yeah, we'll ask you. What, I, do, what do you th- Where does this rank on your uh, movies list? Okay, well, I, I think we discussed this before, but without Alien, you don't have a Predator in my Agreed, mind. Agreed, 100%. Yeah, know. exactly. In my mind, we're, we're taking... Two of the movies we've discussed on this podcast, First Blood and Alien, combine those and you basically have Predator. Right. You have the alien slasher taking them out in the jungle, taking out basically a bunch of Green Berets, a bunch of Rambos, if you will, including one very much lookalike in Billy, uh, Sonny Landham's character. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So without that, like I I definitely am respecting... Alien for giving us that um, that look into sci-fi horror. Even though I don't partake in the horror that much, I, I can definitely appreciate its influence on the sci-fi genre uh, of really, really all of a sudden seeing space more as a threat than just like this beautiful place to explore. It's full of stuff that's just going to kill you if you let your guard down. So don't let your guard down. Yeah. It's not going to matter if you scream, right? So, so many, uh, so many things come from this movie. It's so influential. It's this scene itself is so iconic. I don't, a predator doesn't have a scene as iconic as this one. I think a predator, I think of like mm. a whole flashbulb or a whole flip book of, of images, like the stick around, like Billy, Billy Duke, Bill Duke, like a bunch of different, bunch of different scenes, a bunch of different scenes. But I think of alien, like this is what pops up. And then I kind of think of like, the creature taking out Dallas and Harry Dean. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Ripley to, to a little bit lesser degree because the alien absolutely takes center stage. That said, when I watch it this time and I've watched the scene over and over again, uh, I, I'm, I'm definitely going to reach for the predator movie um, more often because of the pacing. Like I, I don't mind a movie that really takes its time. 
um, at least in the first half. But by the time the second half arrives, Alien to me kind of slows down unnecessarily, like in fits and starts, where it's like mm. Ripley's the only survivor. And it's the movie is still somewhat taking its time in, in places. And I'm just like, okay, like we need to, I thought this is where it like rushes to the end and she blasts it out and like liquefies it with the plasma rockets. Uh, I, I like, I like it taking its time in the beginning, but towards the end, it's like, all right, it's time to really ramp up that intensity, ramp up the speed. And I, I think predator does a better job of after the crew is picked off one by one, it really sets the stage quickly, I think, and like leads right to the showdown a little yeah. bit more quickly but all, all the same like it's a very very similarly structured movie predator is to what alien set before and i can recognize that now uh, much like i recognize rambo's influences on predator sure. so i'll choose predator but uh, i love alien for what it did for like so many movies after it got it yeah there it is folks there it is um yeah i i think that if Alien was not one of John McTiernan's favorite movies um, or just a movie that he took inspiration from. I would be very, very surprised. Right. I, I think there's a lot of similarities there. All the same things you mentioned, along with just the the camera work. We talked a lot about in Predator about how there were a lot of times when he could have just had the camera be static. But he chose much more dynamic, interesting shots, long one takes as he moves through the jungle. Um, and that is absolutely present here in alien. You know, the camera never really stops moving in alien. It's always sort of shifting or floating around this, this spaceship to give us a sense of the environment and to give us a sense of unease that I think is very, very much like predator. Um, before we did this podcast, I probably would have chosen predator, mm -hmm. but after having watched this a couple times, watched the documentary, I've definitely, I I've always, like recognize this as being a seminal entry in the sci-fi horror genre, but I have definitely gained a new appreciation for this film. And uh, I think it's one of the greats. And um, I think I might have to give it to alien here. Okay. It, uh, it, it uh, sort of leans into my, my sensibilities a bit, like what I like uh, about these types of movies. And um, yeah, sorry predator, but I, I'm going to have to give it to alien this time. Alien versus Predator, the podcast. <laughs> Please no. <laughs> Please yes. All right. Uh, recommends. What do you have to recommend this week, John? As I was cleaning up my classroom just in the last week, um, I actually came across a YouTube channel that I could listen to um, effectively without having to watch what was happening on screen. Ah, yeah, yeah. Nice. It was really nice and I kind of binge watched all the main videos I'll recommend here in a minute, but there is a YouTube channel called Atomic Shrimp. Um, it consists of basically a guy posting videos about various topics, but what his main popular topics are, or his main top that, but what his main popular topic is, um, is scam baiting, which is the practice of um, luring these email scammers in uh, with this... Oh, to like expose them? Yeah, to kind of expose them. He doesn't do the exposure as much as he just kind of wastes their time. There are <laughs> okay, some popular YouTube channels out there that really dive into like exposing and showing the credentials and turn on the webcam of the scammers. This guy doesn't usually go that far. It's usually just in an email exchange, but mm. um, Atomic Shrimp, I think, does a great job of basically 
explaining the narrative of a process that usually takes like months and months of mm. feedback between him and another of him and, and a scammer. Um, you know, like a, they say like, oh, okay, you've won the prize. You just have to, you know, pay the whatever the release fee and then you'll be right, given right, this, right. this many dollars or you want this inheritance. <laughs> it's the same scams you've seen since the internet started. Sure. Um, but he just does such a good job of building this narrative um, and just kind of calmly going through um, his back and forth with uh, other people, with these scammers. Huh. Um, yeah, and he, his video only has like 30-ish, or his channel only has about 30-ish videos specifically of scam baiting. Um, but each one is between like 10 and 20 minutes long. So it's really easy to put that playlist on and just like kind of let it go in the yeah, background. Sure. And you're just like, as it's going, you're just kind of hanging on like what the exchange is going to bring next, whether it's going to be yeah. like the scam, the scammer finally becoming frustrated and ending the communications. Or maybe there's like a little postscript where they hop back on and curse his name for uh, exposing them as the criminals they are. But uh, yeah, that's it's just a fun little listen that's atomic shrimp um huh. youtube nice yeah uh there's an episode of the podcast reply all a couple episodes i think where they essentially do that they take a scam that has been attempted on them and they really try to like fully expose what's going on to the point that one of the podcasters actually travels to india oh. to try to track down this person that is running the scam it's pretty good listen i think they broke it up into two episodes um but it's along the same uh same lines as uh, as that sounds pretty good wow okay <laughs> All right, I'm going to recommend a movie that I know you were lukewarm on, um, but that I really, really enjoyed. Um, and that is the new Guy Ritchie film called Wrath of Man. Um, yeah, this movie combines pretty much, if you could ask me, like, Jeff Glover, would you like to make a movie? And I'd be like, sure. What should that movie be about? I'd be like, well, there should be some good fighting. Check. There should be lots of of gun gunplay, lots of gunfire, lots of good shootouts. Okay, check. There should be an element of a heist in it. Okay, check. Um, and it should be done uh, by a good director, who's mostly a good director. <laughs> check. And so this movie checks all those boxes for me. This is like, this is good Guy Ritchie again. Guy Ritchie has had a, a, a history in the last like 10, 15 years of not making the greatest movies. Um, but I always really liked his early output, you know, Lockstock and Snatch and those movies from the late 90s, early 2000s, I really enjoyed. Um, and this, I feel like, really gets back to what he's good at, which is um, like uh, gangsters, um, action, lots of uh, stunts, a lot of great uh, shootout scenes. Um, there's a good just kind of this heist storyline where you don't quite know whose um, allegiance lies with who. And uh, I, I, I know you watched it and you like you said you liked the first half more mm -hmm. than the second half. Yeah. And, and I, I have to say, I, I enjoyed it the whole time. And, awesome. Um, and uh, so if, if any of those things that I said uh, are of interest to you, I would definitely recommend it at the very least checking it out. So that's my recommend. It's the Wrath of Man. Wrath of Man. Oh, did you say it stars Jason Statham? 
Oh, and Statham. Yeah, Statham is great. Statham, yeah, Statham's great in everything he does. So, yeah, watch, he's very good in this. Yeah, yeah. Watch it for watch it for Statham. Um, I thought I is. thought what was so funny is like they're taking all these British, Scottish, Irish actors, and they they try to make them all speak with American accents. I'm like, I know you can tell from like <laughs> minute one where they're doing like the kind of like flashback to the main event of the whole movie like the, right right and it's like holy cow like why not just set it in england you know like make that the thing but i think they really liked the whole like metropolis setting that london probably yeah it, it kind of gives it a a non-specific uh place and time right. you know which is maybe what he was going for. Um, I noticed that too. I was able to pretty quickly let it go because right. I got pretty engrossed in the story and the action that was going on. But uh, yeah, that is a funny choice. I'll admit that. <laughs> no, it was it, it was it was good and it was worth watching. Of course, to the end, I think to see how the twist plays out. Like, what's the twist? And they'll tell you like right in the middle, and then see how that plays out for the rest of the movie. Yeah, and I can understand, uh, now that I know kind of your movie watching and like, I know a little bit about what you like and don't like about movies, I can understand why you didn't like the second half of the movie as much. It's pretty nihilistic. Um, if you are someone who gets invested in characters, um, <laughs> this might not be the movie for you, but um, yeah, it's, uh, if you just want to watch a dark story with uh, really awesome uh, uh, action sequences and shootouts, um, check it out. Check it out. Check it out. Check it out. Check, check, check John, uh, we can't beat around the bush anymore. I must know. What is going to be our next film? Please tell me. Oh, oh, I have a <laughs> I have a treat for you, Jeff. Oh boy. So I already threw the tam tam. I already put the timestamp at the bottom of the page. Not that that's going to help you, but I can tell you hmm. that the minutes you're going to need to watch for this movie are 10618 to 11540. Don't okay. worry too much. There's not like a lot of talking, I'm going to say. Um, hmm. I could throw like, maybe I'll throw you like an audio clue. Okay. You tell me what scene I'm talking about. Okay. Okay. You ready? Yeah. Here it goes. Did that help? Oh, boy. Um, was that a spaceship or a race car? No, ne- neither. 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 Let me try it again. Is that better? Is that supposed to be uh, an animal or a monster? No, 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 no. That that oh, oh, oh. that is a prop plane. It is a propeller plane. Okay, okay. Wrong vehicle. All right. <laughs> <laughs> a prop plane. Yes. Um, give me a year. Do you have a year in front of 1959. you? Nineteen fifty nine. So our by far our earliest. Whoa! Movie I have not seen a lot of movies that are that old. Okay, okay. I can, I can um, maybe this will give it away. Think of a, an iconic scene with a prop plane. <laughs> uh, like probably one of the iconic scenes in movie history. We'll go there. Like it's not King Kong, is it? No, no, no. That's a good one, but that's from, I think, 33? Like the 30s, yeah. You're going to have to tell me. I don't know. Okay, I'll, I'll give some more. Okay, it's directed by Hitchcock. Oh, okay. There's a I have Hitchcock is a bit of a blind spot for me. There's a lot of Hitchcock I haven't seen. Yeah. Um so the fact that there's a prop plane in it might not do much for me because the only Hitchcocks I've really ever seen is like The Birds and Psycho and maybe Rear Window. Okay. So yeah, it's not 
It's not a Jimmy Stewart movie. It's a Cary Grant movie. Does that help? No. <laughs> I'm <laughs> okay. not good with older movies. Okay. It's, it's, You're going to have to reveal it's it. It's Cary Grant running in a field away from an airplane. Is that Vertigo? No. In the crop duster chase scene in North by Northwest. an advertising man, not a red herring. I've got a job, a secretary, a mother, two ex-wives, and several bartenders dependent upon me. And I don't intend to disappoint them all by getting myself slightly killed. Cary Grant becomes a secret agent against his will. Propelled at gunpoint onto the highest level of international intrigue and framed for murder. Cary Grant, running for his life, searching for a man who doesn't exist, and a secret nobody knows, and finding a blonde who has all the answers. Hello there. Tell me, why are you so good to me? Shall I climb up and tell you why? At breakneck speed, they race together toward the excitement that lies dead ahead, north by northwest. How do I know you aren't a murderer? You don't. Harry Grant, Eva Marie Saint, and James Mason as the man of sinister surprises. Apparently, the only performance that will satisfy you is when I play dead. In your very next role, you'll be quite convincing, I assure you. The perfect setup for suspense. With the perfect woman and the perfect crime. As Alfred Hitchcock takes you north by northwest. North by Northwest. Wow. Okay. Yeah, just, I've never seen North by Northwest. Oh, you. Oh, it is a good one. Is it? All right. I'm excited. It's. It's. I mean, not only. I. I know we're like kind of. I'm. I'm kind of punching above my weight up a, a bit talking about such an iconic scene. Like when you talk about iconic movie scenes, like we're talking Alien, of course, with the chestburster scene. Like horror wise, there's probably not much more iconic than that. But just like iconic overall. Not just like suspense movies, but just overall movie scenes. You, you'd be hard pressed to find scenes more iconic, more like just well known than that scene. This is one of the reasons why I'm excited to do this project with you because there are a lot, uh, for as many movies as I've seen, I have a lot of blind spots. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of movies made prior to 1970, I'd say. Mm-hmm are big blind spots for me. I just have not gone back and watched a lot of older movies. Um, And so like North by Northwest is one that I've always heard is a classic Hitchcock, Mm -hmm. but I've never seen it. And I'm really stoked to have the excuse to watch it now. Yeah. And so here, I think this is the first time that you've recommended a movie that I've never seen. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I did it to you with First Blood, and now you're doing it to me with some uh, classic Hitchcock. Yeah, That's North exciting. by Northwest. So just just a reminder, and it's I put the timestamp in the movie notes here, but just as a reminder for the listener, the timestamp is 
106.18 to 115.40. And that scene begins with a bus driving through the fields of, not through the fields, but driving on a highway through the uh, cornfields of Indiana, ultimately dropping off Cary Grant's character of Roger Thornhill. And the scene ends with Roger Thornhill (laughs) taking a um, bystander's vehicle and driving away in it. From from the uh, the from the scene, I'll say. Here's how much of a blind spot I have with this movie. Not only have I never seen it, <clears throat> I have absolutely no idea what it's about. Oh, it is. I am going in. I am going in as blind as you possibly can go into a movie. It's what some and, people call like the first James Bond movie because it's made three years before Doctor No mm, and before our boy Sean Connery really. Oh, yeah, takes on the mantle by Northwest. <laughs> I ripped that movie off. I just remade it. I just took North by Northwest and added titties. (laughs) And bathing suits. Exactly. But uh, Cary Grant, like you'll, you'll notice when you're watching this movie, he was like, he was just this magnetic charmer of a personality when he's on screen. Like you can't, you can't, look away from him. You can't not think about what he's doing whenever he's not on screen, which is very little in this movie. He's on the screen for most of the time. I don't want to spoil anything. It's just some of his lines are like laugh out loud, loud, funny. I was watching the movie the other day and I was like, Oh my gosh, like there's so many little situations and really his reactions to everything is, is what Mm. makes the movie tick. And and, uh, this weirdly enough, this scene will really stand out from the rest of the movie. Like even though the scene becomes so iconic, him running through the cornfields away from the crop duster plane, like it really stands out from the rest of the movie. When you watch it, you're like, wow. Oh, okay. Like they took this guy and put him in this situation. Like that's interesting and suspenseful. It, it just kind of sticks out from the rest of the movie in a fun way. I think. Okay. Okay. Just in some wow. excellent well, filmmaking. I can't wait for you to watch it. I am excited. Um, this is, like I said, this is what fun. What is fun about this project, and um, it's fun because I think that we've been choosing a lot of movies that are our favorites, a lot of movies that are sort of on brand for us, which is you know tends to be more like action and sci-fi, and you know for me horror and stuff. But uh, as as we progress forward, we're going to be branching out into other films that we find interesting outside of uh that constraint and i think that's exciting and um this is really cool a uh, good choice Thanks. and i can't wait to discuss this one with you awesome yeah yeah no you, you're welcome like i said i'm excited to hear what you have to say about it i think i've watched in the rewatch over the last week i probably watched the first or rewatched the first half of the movie then i saw like the second half to pick up on because it's been probably five six years since I watched the whole thing all the way through, but it, it, mm. it is fun to see what people deemed a classic at the time and yeah. you know, took, took as an iconic scene. Um, yeah. Yeah. Very movie cool. History really. All right. Well, are we about to wrap up this uh, episode even through all the technical difficulties, even through all the technical difficulties, we just, yeah, the show must go on. So that's right. We're here for you, people. We're here for you, everybody. So if <laughs> if if you want to be heard by us, then let us know what you're thinking about movie scenes and movies in particular. Uh, you can email the show, seenitallpodcast at gmail.com. 
Remember, that's S-C-E-N-E, it all podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on, on Twitter at seen it all underscore. The underscore is silent. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you can, what's my third thing? Jeff, help me out. Uh, Facebook group. All right. And you can join the Facebook group. It's just the name of the show, <laughs> Seen It All with Jeff and John. So speaking of Jeff, uh, where can people find you, Jeff? Oh, you know, I'm on the Twitter. You can find me there, Jeff Glover. I am Carl underscore Hungus 314. My name is Carl been expert. Come find me on the Twitter sphere. Will do. We will do that. So uh, thank you so much, Jeff, for um, volunteering this movie, Alien, putting me through the ringer with a horror movie. I uh, really, my pleasure. I <laughs> really appreciate visiting it. Um, and I can't wait to talk about the next movie with you. Absolutely. All right. Take us out. Sure. For all things seen at all with Jeff and John, I'm John Zabriskie. And I am Jeff Glover. And until next time, stick around. Stick around. Stick around. Stick around. Stick around. You wanna see, yeah, you wanna see Like when the xenomorph took out Harry Dean You wanna see, yeah, you wanna see Like when Bobby D says you're talking to me You can go to the diner for a meal with Meg You can yell at your class, stab yourself in the leg You can upgrade your boat for when sharks attack And you can be like Arnold, tell him I'll be back You wanna see, yeah, you wanna see Like when the xenomorph took out Harry Dean You wanna scene yeah you wanna see like when bobby d says you're talking to me jeff and john talk scenes and quotes jeff improvises while john takes notes from mozambique to montreal you can join in the chat on scene it all you wanna see yeah you wanna see like when the xenomorph took out harry dean you wanna see yeah you wanna see like when bobby d says you're talking to me Seen it all with Jeff and John.